0: Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Welcome, everybody, to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Today's episode is really exciting because you know I like to bring post-traumatic parents to our community so that we can hear their stories and hear how they hack their parenting and their trauma into a superpower. So today we're speaking to someone I admire a lot. Her name is Stephanie Chandler. She is the founder of the Nonfiction Authors Association, and I recently attended her conference which was that event that I was talking about where I got to pitch my book to some agents. And it was a really exciting event. And there were tons of other classes I learned a lot from. And Stephanie has a really unique post-traumatic parenting story. So we would love to hear it. So welcome, Stephanie.
1: Hey, Dr. Robin. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Sure. We're so excited to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about your post-traumatic parenting journey?
1: Yeah. So back in 2013, I lost my husband to suicide. He had struggled for many years with bipolar depression and my primarily depression. And it was obviously a traumatic loss. Our son was seven at the time. It was a journey I wasn't anticipating and one that I can thankfully say all these years later, we've come through the other side of it, but it definitely wasn't an easy one.
0: Wow. So that it sounds like I mean the pain of going through having a loved one with bipolar depression. I think people talk about the death and the death is painful and losing a husband is painful. Being a single mom is painful, but living with someone with bipolar depression must have also been its own struggle and parenting through that.
1: Oh my familiar. goodness, you nailed it and you're absolutely right. So few people even think about the years we had prior to that that were really difficult and chaotic. And I was a single mom before I became a single mom. I felt like that for many years. And it was, you know, a tragic situation. There was no addiction. There were no, you know, he made it to work every day. So, and I was running my own business and, but I was really doing all the heavy lifting in our lives. And yeah, it was, it was a really traumatic, like decade of going through all of that.
0: Single parenting, especially when you're not a single parent, is so hard because people don't realize what you're struggling with. And I think we don't enough appreciate what it's like to be a single parent because everything's on you. The parenting's on you. The stupid things like the plumbing breaks or, you know, the kid needs an emergency dentist appointment or something. There's a crisis at work. It's all you. There's no like B team to be like, all right, you talk to the plumber while I put the kid to bed right? There's just that, even that, just that, it doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but just that daily grind of like, everything's on your shoulders. I feel like people do not understand what that's like.
1: I think they don't. And there's also a difference between single parent and only parent, right? So some people do have the luxury of having maybe a good partner parent, or maybe a challenging partner, parent, you know, co-parent relationship, co-custody, or whatever it is, yeah, when you're the only parent, there is a lot of extra responsibility, a lot of extra fears around having all that responsibility and wanting to do it well, and also trying to fill the hole that's left behind, I mean, which we cannot do, but we certainly as parents want to protect our kids as much as possible. And it's really hard to do that when it's an impossible hole to fill.
0: Yeah. I I imagine like as a parent, you want to shield your son from everything. You want to explain it to him in a, you know, developmentally appropriate way, especially when he was seven. And then you are the only parent. I think you're making such a good point because it's true. There are situations where there is shared parenting. And even if those aren't ideal situations, sometimes there is someone else in this child's life. And here you are the only one.
1: Yeah. And I remember just like thinking, who do I reach out to? to support us what male figures can be more prominent in his life. Like my dad and some male friends and things like that. I had a male friend who came over and played catch with him at the park after I tried and failed miserably. <laughs> so, you know, it's those things where they say it takes a village to raise a child. And I really tried to look for a village, but ultimately it always came back to me.
0: Yeah. I was talking to a post-traumatic parent who's a widow and she was saying about trying to teach her son to play basketball and she's like, you know like I hate those things where're like you know girls can't throw, girls can't catch, but this girl can't throw and can't catch. So someone else is going to have to be that person and just getting up the courage to ask and reach out and find people you know to find like you're saying sort of that tribe of men who will help. and it doesn't necessarily have to be men, right It has to be people who are going to be in this kid's life because yeah, only parents a lot.
1: Yeah. It's funny when we, I I will never forget being at the park and trying to play catch and my son yelling out, mom, you need practice more than I do. <laughs> and then also, you know, he was in Cub Scouts when his dad died. And within weeks of that event, they had that derby they do every year where the kids build a little car and they race it. And I had to build the car by myself. I was up in the middle of the wow. night doing this. It lost, it was like last in a fleet of 13 cars And I ran out of there crying because it was all, I mean, this was weeks after my husband died and it was that moment of, oh my gosh, I have to do it all.
0: Right. Like I imagine thinking of that car, it's just symbolizing that loss and that, oh, it's on my shoulders.
1: Mm -hmm. That was a huge moment, a huge moment. And I also never, ever, ever want to complain about being an only parent because it is a privilege. And I take that very seriously. I appreciate what I have. I appreciate our days. They were. We had some really rough days, but our days look pretty good now.
0: Right. And that's always nice, right? Like there is that other side of the story, right? Like it does get better. You know, we do heal. It does. We do adjust to that new normal eventually. And it takes time, especially in the shock of any sudden loss. You feel like that's never going to happen. But there is the point where it's like, oh, this is normal now. This is the new normal. I can do this. It takes time. But for those post-traumatic parents who are listening, who are new to a sudden loss, there will come a moment where the new normal starts to feel normal.
1: Oh, my goodness, Robin. I mean, that's one of the first things I tell people when they have a big loss is it's not always going to hurt this much because it felt like that for me. And then some of us who have sudden losses deal with complex grief. I'm sure you're very well familiar with that. So that's what happened to me about nine months into the loss of my husband, I realized I wasn't feeling better. I was still really, really struggling to get up every day to function. And so I had to get some help with that. And I remember reading an article that said, you know, you should start feeling a little better by six months. And if you're not, something else is going on. And complex grief often comes from losing somebody traumatically, suicide, murder, or a sudden loss that you're just not expecting. And so getting help, seeking therapy, I went on an antidepressant. Those were all things that helped me turn that corner by the end of the year.
0: I love what you're saying about like those timetables, because I always find with those timetables on the one hand, they're so not helpful because people are like, Oh, no, at this amount of months, I'm supposed to do this. Right. On the other hand, they're so helpful because it's like, wait, you're supposed to be feeling somewhat better at this point. It's not. Maybe I need to talk to someone. Maybe I need to figure that out.
1: Yeah, that was really important because I kept thinking, you know, what's normal? How long am I supposed to feel this way? And then by that nine month point when I was still struggling so much, I realized this isn't right. and i I agree, those timelines, the stages of grief, None of that holds up. I'm sorry. It just doesn't. The stages of grief are like this, (laughs) they're like, they're like waves of an ocean and they come and go. And, and even now, you know, I'm coming up on a nine year anniversary and it's so much softer now, but you never completely stop missing that person. It never goes away. And I I always say, you don't move on, you move forward, you Mm -hmm. know? So those are all the kind of steps in recovering from a loss like that.
0: I definitely tell people to expect what I call like a grief hijack. Mm -hmm. You know, you're fine. Everything's going fine. And something happens where you just want to tell that person or you just have a memory or something and grief just overwhelms you. And you could be doing very well. You could have had, you know, a good year you've been, you've processed, you're okay. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow because people don't really die in the past, they die in the future, you know, and then they keep on dying. So, and that's normal. I've heard this, even at grief trainings, that that type of prolonged grief is like somehow pathological. A grief hijack is not pathological. A normal brain triggered properly is going to feel a grief hijack because in that moment, it's just going to be like that. I still have moments, you know, I lost my dad very suddenly in childhood And I'm losing my mom now very slowly to dementia. And there are times that I get excited about something and I call her number. Now, she lives with me. We take care of her. She's with an aide. And I call her just to tell her. And then it's like, oh, right. And grief hijacks you in that moment because you forgot, you reverted to an earlier state of being yeah. for whatever reason. I'm sure you have, you have this with your son when there are like life milestones, or he says something, he makes a joke that you know your husband would have appreciated or, you know, something along those lines and grief just shows up.
1: Oh, it does. I cried at the very first little league game, you know, so yeah, those are moments it shows up when you're not expecting it. But the good news is with time, it shows up less and less. And it's much easier to process and handle. But, uh, you know, in that first year, I didn't think it was ever going to be easier to process and handle.
0: Right. It's so helpful for people to know that it does get easier. And if it doesn't get easier by that about your time period, get help. Not because we want to pathologize grief, but because there are ways of taking an experience that's too big for our brains to metabolize and breaking it down into bite-sized pieces so we can metabolize it. It's not saying that it's okay, that the loss was okay, or that like we're healing and moving on. Like you're saying, we're moving forward with.
1: We're moving forward with. And to be clear, I was really, really hesitant to do medication. I've never suffered with depression in my life. I'm always that glass half full kind of person. And my fear was it would numb it out and delay the processing, which it didn't do. It just kind of helped me get a little motivated again. So for anybody who's thinking that that might be helpful I and mean, it's a very personal decision but I have no regrets for doing that in fact I'm glad I made that decision.
0: So helpful that you're sharing that because I think a lot of people have that fear about medication it'll change my personality it'll take away my creativity it'll take away my, like my ability to you know experience the grief and I don't want to let go of it. It won't. It will just rebalance the neurohormones in a way that lets us process and move forward. And if your medication is numbing you out, it's the wrong medication. Then it's time to go back to the psychiatrist and say, wait a minute, this is too much or the wrong thing or the wrong dose, because it shouldn't be like that.
1: Well said. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So I'd love to hear about your journey in starting the nonfiction Authors association and everything that you did. It sounds like you are by nature, such a resilient person, or maybe it's something you've learned but your story is so inspirational the way you you know went to a conference and there were no other nonfiction authors. I'd love to hear more about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it goes back even further than that. So I was in the Silicon Valley for 10 years and I ended up in this soul sucking software sales job with a four million dollar quota. I hated every minute of that. Job and I got an ulcer before my thirtieth birthday, and I was like, "What am I doing? This is nuts." So I had knew that I had always wanted to write. I just didn't know how you go about making a living as a writer. So I opened a bookstore. I left my six figure job to sell six dollar paperbacks here in Sacramento, uh, about twenty eight hundred square feet. I adopted two fat cats at the SPCA, and we were off and running. And within the first, I don't know, three months, I looked around and went, oh my gosh, what have I done? I absolutely (laughs) hated being locked in a building all day. I also thought I was going to write fiction because when you grow up wanting to be a writer, you think you're supposed to write novels. And I started Writers Group. I was a terrible fiction writer. But meanwhile, my friends are all caravanning from the Silicon Valley, which is about two and a half hours away from Sacramento, where I relocated. And they're like, I can't believe you did this you know, I want to leave my job to you. And I can really thank them because I wrote my first book with them as my inspiration. It was a business startup guide. I went to a writer's conference with this proposal for a business book. And all these agents said, nobody knows who you are. And I got a phone call from Mike Larson, who I will forever be indebted to. And he said, I love what you're doing, but you need to go build an audience. So I created a website. I started blogging before blogging was a thing. I was writing articles. I self-published that first book. And then a year later, I got my first book deal because I was able to show I had the side traffic website. I had a growing email list. I signed with an agent. I sold three books total. And then I got turned off by traditional publishing and, and left it behind uh, in favor of self-publishing. But in the midst of all of this, I started the uh, Nonfiction Writers Conference back in 2010, a three-day event, 100% online. And back then I had 18 speakers over three days, all live. Nobody was doing online events like this. It was a really wild, very risky decision, but it went well. And then each year the attendees were saying, how do we keep in touch? And so three years later, in fact, six months before my husband died, I launched the Nonfiction Authors Association.
0: And during
1: that year that I was recovering, the association grew, even though I was completely disengaged. So I knew we had, we were onto something and there was a need for this community.
0: Like you put this out into the world and it grew without your tending. So then clearly it was needed. I have to say, are you me? Because some of the things about your story, I had an ulcer before I was 30. (laughs) I, you know, a lot of these things, I had a very promising career path towards becoming a tenure track professor. And I sort of got seduced by clinical practice and I decided that I'm opening a private practice and I'm going down that route. I just changed courses entirely. And, you know, the whole, just what you're saying about like, yeah, I just decided to do something different. I wrote my book because that's what people needed. I also heard the same thing as you. When I when I started my book journey, there was actually an agent who very kindly responded to my query, which of course, as we know, agents do not have to do. And she said, I'm only responding to you because your book is one I would have needed to read. My children are like have their own children now, but if I would still be parenting, this is a book I would have needed to read back then. So I'm going to tell you everything you're doing wrong. And then she was completely brutal. Really? I mean, it was so kind of her, but like, you don't have a platform. No one knows your name. If I Google you, I find a couple of academic papers and some conference presentations. That's not going to interest the publisher. Where's your Instagram? Where's your Twitter? Where's your LinkedIn? Where, like, you know, she was just like, where's your website? Your website is like one landing page. That's ridiculous. You know, and all of that sort of like very brutal, like get back to me in five years when you got your act together kind of, you know, kind of feedback was super helpful because it was an action plan of like, here are all the things I clearly need to do. And I did them, you know, and now I'm at that point where I'm hoping to sign with an agent very soon. So I'm like getting to that path, but yeah, her feedback, it was brutal, but boy, was it accurate.
1: Oh my gosh. That's, I mean, that's a gift for an agent to do that, even though it's hard. And I had the same thing. I had a folder in my desk called rejections and it was stuffed full of, you know, form letters and then the occasional, Agent would say something like that, but I saved it all. And then but that phone call from Mike Larson from Larson Pomada is a well-known wow. longtime literary agent. And the fact that he believed in me enough to pick up the phone and call me, it just lit a fire for me. I thought, I am going to make this happen. And I spent the next year making it happen, just like you're doing. And look at it pays off, right? It
0: definitely pays off. I think what both of us had was we had a message to get out into the world. Like you said. There are people like me who hate their corporate jobs, who want to start a business. I figured it out. I did it. I'm going to teach them how. I have this passion to educate other post-traumatic parents about post-traumatic parenting. So that book, and the fact also that I got that endorsement from that agent, the reason she responded to my query, because she said, I shouldn't even dignify this query with a response because you don't have a platform. I will, because I would have needed to read this book. Had Mm -hmm. I read this book 30 years ago, it would have changed my life. That told me that, okay, if this kind of intimidating, hard-boiled New York City, you know, senior literary agent would have wanted to read this book, then I'm on to something. Like, this book needs to be out there in the world. I think we all can do that for other people, right? We all can look for that person where I'm going to give this person feedback and help them because hopefully that will move forward in the universe. Like, I can do that too. I recently had to not hire someone who applied to work for me. And I did give her very detailed feedback about why... I cannot hire her at this moment and what she might need to do if she wants to be hired in the future at a practice like mine. She was a beginning mental health professional because give that out there in the world, like give people that information because if she acts on the advice I gave her, she will be a very talented clinician in a few years and then she can apply again.
1: I love that. And the other thing about the work that you and I have done to build our audiences and move toward getting our books in the world is that we're reaching more people and making a difference. So for me, it was really important that my life feels purposeful. And so, and it hit me one day, you know, helping authors get their books done, get their books promoted. I'm helping other people live their purpose. And so that's a great reason to get up every morning, just like what you're doing. You're helping other people parent during traumatic times in their lives. And so it's just, to me, it means so much and that it's, More than just about trying to sell books, it's about trying to make an impact in the world.
0: You're so crystallizing what I've been thinking, which is that if building a platform is just about building a platform because you want to sell books, that is a soul destroying kind of thing to do. I mean, for those of us who didn't grow up wanting to be in sales, it just doesn't feel valuable. But you're crystallizing this thought that I have, which is at least as I build my platform, I'm reaching people who need to hear what I have to say. If I impact someone, if someone's listening to this podcast right now and they're like, I'm going to contact Stephanie because I have a nonfiction book in me, right? Or I am at that sudden loss stage and really it's going to feel better. And if it doesn't feel better, there's help for that. This is such important information to know. And that person has helped. Then in that moment, we've been valuable in the universe, right? And for me, you know, I can't just do things just for the sake of, you know, a bottom line or, you know, a profit margin. Just not, that's too soul destroying. (laughs)
1: Well, if you did, you'd still be in your tenured professor position. So yeah,
0: I, yeah, I'd probably be, I'd probably just about be getting tenure now, maybe, maybe about five years ago, but I'd be like cranking out academic research papers, like no one's business, you know, like that's what my life would be. Not that that's not a wonderful life and not that that's not valuable, but it wasn't what like my spark of joy. It wasn't what I wanted to contribute to the world.
1: Yeah. I'm with you. Pick what makes you happy, especially after when you have a loss right? Because one of the things you learn from that is just how precious life is. And I decided that one of my mottos would be to live with as much joy that my husband couldn't access for himself. So it's all about trying to create joy, joyful moments in life and appreciating every day because it's so brief and, you know, we want to leave it a little better than we found it.
0: You're really hacking your trauma into a superpower, like the way you're saying it, which Mm -hmm. is kind of this like pat thing to say, right? We say it as if like, yeah, you know, nobody wants to undergo trauma so that they can then get a superpower. (laughs) Like we really don't, right? But once we've had the trauma and we have to live with it and we have to make meaning out of it, turning it into a superpower is the healthiest, I believe, way of moving forward.
1: Well, I'm gonna just agree with you a hundred percent. If you can find a way to turn it into something positive in the world, it'll make you feel better as well. One of the ways is through writing, by the way. You know, I heard it said, and I I don't know the source or if this is even a quote, but every time you tell your story, you're healed a little bit more. And I have found that to be really true. That, you know, every time you talk about it, it gets easier to talk about. And there was a time when I stumbled over the words and I couldn't say it out loud and You know, all of those things, but every time you talk about it, you're healed a little bit more. Every time you write about it, you're healed a little bit more and then connecting with other people who are in your same shoes. For me, that was an essential part of that process was finding fellow widows, younger widows who lost their husbands. And by younger, I mean, we were all in our forties and fifties who lost their husbands the same way. And then being, it's not feeling so alone. Because I think a lot of times in grief too, people feel so alone. Nobody understands how I'm feeling. And so to find other people and then, you know, look for ways, like, for example, my little group, there's five of us and we just met through a larger support group, but we started doing things like volunteering at the suicide awareness walk. And we go on trips together. We go to Lake Tahoe, and we were asked last time, What are you celebrating? And we looked at each other. We're like, Life. (laughs) Like, we're here to celebrate life, right? Like, do you want
0: the full answer to that question, perhaps? Yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs) exactly.
0: Sorry, yeah, I went on a little
1: bit of a turny uh, twisty. No, but there, it, but. It's so true because it's like that
0: three-part solution. And that's why, like, you know, we have the targeted, we have um, the post-traumatic parenting community, right, where we're getting together and we're supporting each other through our post-traumatic parenting. You know, we have that. And then there's telling our stories in therapy and in groups, right, which is one way of processing. And I agree that every time you tell your story, there's a little bit more healing. And then there's journaling, writing, writing for healing. And it's a different form of processing. There's something different about like putting words to paper than putting words to someone else's ear. I think it's, they each heal you in a different way. And I have seen that that's one of the reasons why in post-traumatic parenting every week I post on Instagram, a journal prompt so that, you know, you can journal about your post-traumatic parenting or about your post-traumatic journey in general, because journaling is so different than telling a friend and telling Mm -hmm. a friend is so different than journaling right? We need both of those things. It's so useful. I always say to people in therapy, whenever anyone asks, how do I supercharge therapy? Like, I just want to get the most out of therapy. I'm like, buy a journal and make sure (laughs) to journal. And if you don't journal, if you don't have time to like paper and pencil journal, voice note or vlog, or, you know, or send yourself a message or, you know, voice to text type, whatever floats your boat, like do whatever will work. I know for myself on my way home from therapy, I used to voice note a journal entry because I wanted to process what I had just heard and, you know, the connections that were sparking. I knew when I got home, I would go straight into other things and I didn't have the time to sit down and paper and pencil journal or type. So just voice noting my journal and then it would just get transcribed naturally and then I would have it and then I would be able to like write it again and, you know, even spend more time on it. But at least I had in that moment, I could journal it. So I knew I was journaling every week.
1: That is such a cool idea. I mean, I've journaled my whole life. I have dozens and dozens of filled journals, and it's so interesting as a way to process emotions and identify emotions. It was a a huge part of coming through my grief journey. So I love that that's one of your top tools because I'm a huge believer in journaling.
0: There's something I learned from Carol Gilligan, who wrote the book in a different voice. She was a very influential psychologist. She was a professor of mine at NYU and part of her research method is this thing called I poems, where as a person's talking to you, every time they say the word I, you look at the word right next to the word I, and then you make a poem out of it and you see if it gives you some insight. And I always do I poems when I'm writing a journal, I'll pull out an I poem of like what I wrote and I'll be like, oh, and then like, I remember talking about something that I was very excited for. I think maybe it was actually presenting at the nonfiction authors association at the conference, doing the you know the pitch, the live pitch to the agents. And I was doing a lot of things, and I wrote like, I'm afraid that this, and I'm thinking about that. And and as I took out my iPhone, I was like, so you're afraid, 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 because I kept saying, it kept being like, that was the words that kept being adjacent to the word I. And I said, okay, Mr. Fear, you are here. You are telling me that this is scary. Okay, how do I manage you? But being able to do that gave me insight into the amount of fear I was feeling that I didn't really have insight into it. I'm usually pretty self-aware.
1: Wow. That is such a cool trick. I am going to totally try that. In fact, I might go back through like my last five journal entries and see what they say. That's, I love that. The eye Right.
0: I have no idea if Carol would consider that like, you know, your own individual research into yourself, or she would consider it consistent with her listening guide methodology, which is like a whole form of qualitative research. That's fascinating. But I love doing icons. I love just going through my journal weeks later because I find like the day of it's a little too fresh and then saying, oh, that's what was going on then. There it is. Okay. That's the
1: theme. I'm hundred percent going to do that. I tend to journal late at night. So tonight, tonight, Robert, I will be doing that.
0: <laughs> I'm so curious to hear what you come up with. You're going to find insights and connections that you haven't seen before.
1: I bet. I bet.
0: Can I ask a little bit about your son and, you know, his reaction to everything and his reaction to having a mom with her own business and all of that?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, he was seven when we lost his dad and, I mean, I coming home to have that conversation was brutal. One of his first questions was who's going to be my daddy now. Right. So that was really tough. And I spent three and a half years not dating, not wanting to date. And then I eventually did meet somebody really wonderful and we're engaged now, but bringing up my son, I just made sure I showed up. I showed up to everything. One of the benefits of being a business owner is I set my own schedule so my mission was to attend every single school function, field trip except the camping one. I did all of the field trips, all the the school events. I volunteered in the classroom. I just really wanted to be there. I took him we have a local Sutter Hospital does this incredible bereavement art program for kids so he did 12 weeks of art, he did some therapy and he's done really really well. I think that Kids are amazingly resilient. I know he's carrying that with him. I mean, you're you lost a parent at a young age. It's you don't get over it, but you learn to carry it and you learn to carry on with your life and move forward every day.
0: Yeah, I think you learn what you learn is you reprocess at every new developmental stage. Like it becomes a different thing. But I will tell you from growing up, I remember my dad's absence because he was sick for a long time. I remember my dad's absence, but I remember my mom's presence more. I even remember her, I was in some sort of a school performance and my father was sick and she was in the hospital with him and she was a full-time working mom because in some ways she was the only parent because he was very sick and she had to like go to work and she was sitting at the hospital with my father, like just at his bedside. And I remember she told me, I don't know if I'm going to make it to your performance, but you know, the teacher's gonna, you know, I don't know at those days probably like, you know, VHS it or something, video it or something. And I said, okay. And I was like, okay, because I understood I was probably like a, I want to say maybe sixth, seventh grader. And I understood I was old enough to get that. And then she showed up Mm. and I will never forget how that felt like the joy in my heart when she came in, like she had told me she wasn't coming. And then she came Mm. and I was just so happy. And I remember her presence more than I remember that my father wasn't there or that he wasn't home or that he was, or how sick he was then, or how many weeks he wasn't home then but I remember like
1: she made up for some of that in some way. She
0: definitely, she definitely did.
1: She Mm. definitely
0: did by her presence and by always making me feel like I wasn't being selfish or a burden. If I asked her for emotional support
1: Mm. or if
0: I acted like a typical kid, you know, like because I think sometimes kids do feel like they're being a burden or they do feel like You know, they're asking for too much. Like my parent is dealing with so much and supporting the family and dealing with everything else. How do I ask for something? She never made me feel that way. I think that's the thing I remember the most.
1: That is really encouraging. I mean, it really is. Did you have siblings too?
0: I had siblings, brothers who were much older than me. So they were already self-sufficient adults by the time I was growing up.
1: I think that's one of the benefits of having an only child at home has been how close we've grown through this. And I often have thought about how would I have done this with multiple kids? Because I first of all don't have the patience for that, but just how close we are because it's just been him and I for so long. Right. Yeah, Um, me and my
0: mom were a unit that way. Like we were definitely straight through. I remember in ninth grade when I said, I think I want to. Get a PhD in psychology. And my mother said, okay, so then we will make that happen. Like it was right away a we. (laughs) We have to figure out how to make that happen then. Like, okay.
1: (laughs) And that's amazing that you knew that in the ninth grade. My gosh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was, I feel like that was part of my trauma journey for me. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in psychology and my mom was a guidance counselor. So she was, and I was always interested in how great she was at what she did. You know, she was so good at she would get anybody to open up to her like she would be like literally we'd be in a taxi and the taxi driver would be like spilling his guts, telling his life story. And she'd be giving this incredible validation and then like gentle advice. It was beyond amazing. But I always wanted to know why it worked and how it worked. I didn't just want to know what worked. So I remember telling my mother, I want to be the person who writes the books you read. She's like, "Well, then you would have to be a psychologist." Like, you know, I guess whatever book it was. I said, "This book is really smart. I want to be smart like this, that person." That was back like when I was in 7th or 8th grade. I think I read Getting to Yes back then, you wow. know, and I said, "This is a smart book. I want to be able to write a book like that." And she's like, "Well, then you would have to become a psychologist so that you can study that." And that just lit a fire under me, and then I just started reading everything psychology related. And I didn't know back then about like genres of psychology, like in, you know, so I just would read whatever was in the psychology section. So it would be like, you know, anything from like feel the fear and and do it anyway to like, you know, a book by Freud, you know, like whatever was on the shelf was what I would take out and read. So that is so
1: cool. And look at how it shaped your life and you turned something tragic into a gift for others too.
0: Yeah. It's been a journey and it's definitely been something that you know, this tragedy, if there is a meaning in that tragedy, like we know Victor Frankl said, right, we need to be able to find that meaning because in mm-hmm. the end, and something we talk about a lot in post-traumatic parenting is this A model, acceptance, integration, and meaning. We start with just being able to accept our trauma, which is a lot because there's a part of our brain that wants to undo it. And then integrating that into our personality, right? And turning that into like, this is the new me, the new normal. And then finally finding that mission in life, Mm -hmm. that meaning making, because if we don't have that, then it's just suffering. We have to have that. And now I'm going to do this with my trauma, with my loss, with my grief.
1: Mm, That's so good. And, you know, I've been really fascinated with Buddhism for the last few years because the Buddhists believe that life is suffering and our purpose is to be happy anyway. And I come back to that a lot about, it's such a brilliant philosophy, you know, and I spent my husband, I I was 41 when he died. And I thought I really hadn't been through anything traumatic to that degree at that point. And what a charmed life I had lived. But now when I look back and think, well, life is full of suffering and we have that choice, right? We can simmer in the suffering or we can choose to find the meaning and the gift and move forward. So I just love your aim model. That's beautiful.
0: I agree that it sounds very pat to say it unless you've been through it, right? Mm-hmm. But there is, you know, cause saying like, you know, it's almost like, you know, when you tell a little kid, this will all make sense when you get older. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, it's like, like, you know, yeah, one day you'll get this. But, you know, I still remember when I like when I was a little kid, there were um, some older teenagers and they were eating chocolate or something. And I remember saying, can I have some? No, this is only for the grownups. And when you're older, you'll understand. I remember thinking like, no, when I'm older, I'll just be able to say that to another little kid. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Like, what are you even Um, saying to me? But the fact is that when we find meaning in our suffering, it is when we have a superpower.
1: It is. And I'm flashing to my little group of widows because one of them, she was kind of ahead of all of us in the journey. And I had said to her, how did you feel when she had discovered her husband? And she said, my first thought was relief. I was relieved for him because he struggled for so long. And that was such a moment of, wait a minute, they did struggle. Like they, it's not unlike cancer. They couldn't beat an illness Right. And then she took that pain and she turned it into volunteering and doing all these events and raising money for families of suicide survivors. And I serve on the board for the organization where we met. So making meaning out of these things really does feel better. And I always say I'm not going to be on the prevention side because I do not know anything about suicide prevention, but I can be there for other people who walk in my shoes.
0: And I think it's true that dying by suicide is dying of an illness. You know, it's sort of, you know, a patient of mine, the parents came in and one of the parents was really not understanding what depression is and said, but don't, can't you understand that it's all in his head? And I Mm -hmm. said, yes, so is a brain tumor. A brain tumor is all in your head. And yet you would understand that if your child had a brain tumor and we were recommending medication and therapy and all of these types of things, you would understand that these things are necessary. Depression's all in his head in the exact same way. And he needs medication and therapy and all of those things. This is not a choice he's making. And, you know, this person, this child did not die by suicide, but it was a close call for a while because of that. I think that sense of like, it's all in his head. It's all in his head. He can make a different choice, Hmm. but he can't.
1: No, he can't. I wrote an op-ed in the Washington post the week that Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died all the, both in the same week from mm-hmm. suicide. And my premise was they didn't want to leave. They didn't want to leave children behind. They didn't want to devastate their families. They were in so much pain. You know, I really studied the suicide trance and how people's brains get caught in a loop. And all they're really trying to do is stop that pain. And so when people say to me, suicide is so selfish, I almost get angry because it's actually the opposite of selfish. And a lot of times, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, they think they're doing their families a favor, they're a burden. They'll be better off without me. And I think our message to people struggling with suicidal ideation is nobody's better off without you, right? Right. And there is hope.
0: That's one of the things I've very often found myself saying to teenagers, right? That when I hear that type of ideation, you know, when we're starting to go down that path of like this whole world would be better without me, the world will never be better without you, that I can guarantee your family will not be better off without you. Like, I'm just going to make you that promise. That is not true from talking to families of kids who have to live without them. That is not true. Your family is not better off without you. And I can just say that. And You know, because that's a, that's a distortion of a belief that we have to challenge. No one's better off without you. You'll be better off with you if we get you some medication and some help, but no one's better off without you.
1: Yeah. And I think we need to sing that from the rooftops because depression lies. That's the other thing. I think it speaks to the victim and it tells lies. You're not worth it. They will be better off without you. Just, you know, stop this pain now.
0: Right. Your brain is a bully and your brain is going to push you around and your brain will push you around. It will literally drive you. It will drive
1: you to death. And even if you don't have depression, your brain can be a bully. Right. 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 You know, no matter what your circumstance is, we're all battling that monkey brain.
0: And it's so difficult, I think, for when people are caught up in it, especially when they have to deal with family members who are judgmental, who are saying it's all in your head. It's so hard to give them that compassion. You are contending with an illness and it's a very pernicious illness because it's so invisible.
1: It is. And, and, and honestly, I wish I'd had more patience back then too. That's another thing. When you're helping these families, I didn't know what a depression was. I never experienced it myself. And with the years going on and on and on and things getting worse and worse, you lose your patience. And now I think I would have had a much more empathetic heart But I think ultimately it was going to have the same outcome in my situation.
0: Right. And I'm sure that the way you parented your son and the way you salvaged something good out of this situation, I'm sure that is something that really, especially I think thinking about like if your husband would be here now and he Mm -hmm. could say something, that would probably be the thing he'd say, right? I'm so proud of you for what you did for our son. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I try to keep those memories alive. Like, oh, your dad loved that flavor of ice cream. Or I remember the time your dad and I went, we just got back from Cabo. And I said, you know, your dad and I had our honeymoon here. And these are the things we did and the places we went. And to try to keep him alive in those ways as well. And so my son also knows he's free to talk about him.
0: How old is your son now?
1: He just turned 16. Wow. Wow.
0: Practically an adult
1: yeah and it's obvious like I'm looking up at him now. I'm five eight and I'm looking up at him at six feet. so it's wild. It's a wild time.
0: I'm looking up at all my kids, but I'm five feet, so it's not <laughs> <laughs> You're a fourth grader, you are taller than me. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> totally fine. Um yeah, and what does your son say now about those years?
1: You know, we don't talk about that in great detail. He's a very shy kid. He's really close to the chest. He has his own therapist. So we don't really talk a lot about those times. But I will say, when I started dating and I brought my fiance into our lives, I was very open to that. We didn't set any expectations. I didn't try to put him in a father role. We just created a buddy relationship. And here we are, it's been five years. And we have a wonderful dynamic, the three of us. It's what he, Stuart, brought to our lives is laughter. And so, and we needed laughter. He's a goofball all day, every day. And so it's just created a lot of lightheartedness in our house that we needed.
0: Wow. That sounds amazing. Yeah. What does your son say about like everything that you've done business-wise? Is that something that he wants to do one day? Is it something that he's impressed by?
1: I know he's paying attention. So it does make me wonder what the future holds for him. And I talk about college and learning entrepreneurship. And I wish somebody had talked to me about it sooner because, you know, I feel like I never should have worked for anybody. Although, you know, I got lessons from all of those things, but you just own your own destiny when you own your own business. And so, you know, I have hopes that he will someday want to do something like this. But I think he's going to end up being an attorney or an accountant. Well, you
0: know? that's still owning your own business. I mean, a small business, but that's owning be. your own business.
1: Could be. Yeah, for sure.
0: Both of my adult daughters are, you know, they both have training and professions. My oldest daughter is a board certified behavior analyst. And my next daughter is an accounting school. And mm-hmm. that was one of the things that I always told them, like, as a psychologist, the one thing I didn't learn is business management and mm-hmm. jurisprudence, any of that stuff. And, really if you're a psychologist you are running a small business they teach you all about how to like you know help the kid in front of you and help the marriage in front of you and help the people in front of you they don't teach you a word about like managing employees you know even just like the all the legal aspects of running a business and you know permits they, they don't teach you any of that kind of stuff i always said that was something i had to learn through the like school of life and it was a very expensive education If you're ever doing that, learn it, like take courses, learn it now. I think my second daughter took me seriously and went to accounting school, but yeah.
1: Yeah. And read every book. That's how I did it. I read every book I could get my hands on because I wanted to get it right, but it was a steep learning curve without having studied it in school. So that's my hope is he will at least make that part of his studies.
0: How did you even like start that conference? Like that first conference must've been so terrifying.
1: You know, I don't know. I'm like missing a fear gene or something when it comes to this stuff, because I just kind of get these ideas and then I get obsessed with them. And, you know, I, by then I had some friends in the publishing industry. I was speaking at conferences. So I reached out to my friends. I over-delivered, like that's another lesson I learned. 18 speakers over three days was way too much. We Now we do five sessions a day instead of six. And it's still a lot, as you know. Right. You yeah, of- it was a lot. It was a lot. It's a lot. But at the end of it, you're like, wow, I got a lot of value out of this. Right. So I just kind of decided I was going to go for it. I found an assistant, a virtual assistant who had experience with online events. And back then in 2010, we were doing audio seminars. They weren't, there was no zoom, right? right. So we were doing them by teleconference. So people would dial into a big conference line and then we'd send out the recordings and so it was just a, let's see what happens kind of thing.
0: You were like ahead of the game. Cause like no one was doing these kinds of conferences back then. Now it's like commonplace, but back then no one was doing that.
1: Nobody was doing them. And even when the pandemic hit, I can't even tell you how many people and companies reached out to me for advice on how to make their events go from in-person to online. I mean, it was, there was no difference for us. In fact, we grew through the pandemic because we were already doing everything online And people will ask me once in a while, are you ever going to do an in-person conference? I don't think so. I mean, being online is kind of what makes us special. And I do. It's also so,
0: it's so introvert friendly, right? Like, I think that's the thing that gets people because people forget, you know, like you go to a writer's conference, most writers are introverts. I remember the first writer's conference I went to and... I was saying, I am like so nervous to go because I'm an introvert by nature. I can pretend I've learned skills, I but by nature, I am very introverted. And this person said, it's a conference full of writers. There are probably a lot of introverts there too. I said, oh, right, that's true. <laughs> Come to think of it.
1: Oh my gosh, it's so true. In fact, I'm speaking at the San Francisco Writers Conference next month. I've been speaking at that event for over 10 years, but I'm the same way. I am a, a situational extrovert, I like to say. And then I have lots of writer friends who attend and they'll say, Hey, do you want a room? Nope. I do not want to share a room. I need to decompress at the end of that. Why don't you go to the group dinners? Because I am done. I'm spent by the time the day is over. So yeah, I get it. Yeah, And empathic too doesn't help. So yeah.
0: Same. I, uh, whenever I go speaking here and there, I like, you know, I just was invited to speak in another city and, and they were saying one of the organizers, like, oh, you can stay with me. We have a lovely guest room. And I said, yeah, no, I really prefer to just do a motel room. Cause I also, after the event and especially if afterwards there's like a Q and a session and maybe a little like, you know, party after that, I need to go back to my motel room and just not be around humans. <laughs>
1: a and I need that on a daily basis by the way I need a copious amounts of alone time so yeah I get it
0: same we have a lot of kids in this house and you know between my mom and her caregivers and the aides oh. that come in and out and this grand central station it's fine but I'm lucky that I have my like little writing cave in my basement that I built my room of my own where I, I can sit and I can write yeah it's it's like a necessity I carved it out out of it. actually was our gym and then I carved out a section of the gym and I you know, and I just, this is my writing room. It's just a room. It's four walls, a desk, a printer, and a couple of monitors. That's all it is. <laughs> There's nothing else in there. People were like, oh, how are you decorating this? What are you doing? I'm like, nope, that's all I need. Four walls I need and a door that
1: yeah, I totally get that. I used to check into the Hampton Inn, which is like three miles from my house to write my books. And they're plain, they're bland, they're boring, but you would walk in and you get it done. And that's how I actually wrote my last three books.
0: Yeah. Corporate and beige is best for writing.
1: Totally. <laughs>
0: right. If you're staying at a fancy hotel, there's like stuff to do. There's interesting, you know, there's a pool, there's fun stuff. You stay at a, at a, one of these like sweet type of places and like, you can just write and then you can like Boil up your cup of noodles and like go back to writing. It,
1: exactly. It I Chipotle delivered and bottled water. That's all I need to write a book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The occasional walk around the lobby to remember that I'm like, actually, there are other humans on the planet and it's not like post apocalyptic, you
1: know, something. And that's right. it. That's all I need. <laughs> yep. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So I find that, you know, you must have maybe instinctively known, but you tapped into this idea that a lot of writers are scared to attend in-person events, but an online conference is not scary because you never have to turn on your camera if you don't want to.
1: You don't have to turn on your camera. And also what I hadn't even really considered is we're reaching people around the globe. And I wish we could tally up how many countries we've had attendees from, but all around the globe. And that's really exciting to know that there are people in Africa who are attending our programs who wouldn't otherwise have access to them? So that part's really, really rewarding.
0: And I guess you don't have that fear gene about you know reaching out to really accomplished people. Like you had Anna Quinland speak; I mean, that was incredible. Like, I guess you just don't have fear about reaching out to those people.
1: I don't. I mean, my I guess my philosophy with that is: what's the worst they can do? Say no, you know. So I ask, and I've done this with my whole writing career, right? Getting endorsements for my books. Getting people to write from my website, I just ask. And it's always amazed me how many top authors and speakers check their own email, for example. Now Anna Quinlan doesn't check her own email. I do <laughs> through her through her publisher, but but yeah, I guess my thought is always what's the worst that could happen? They can say no. Just keep asking.
0: I think I think this is so important because so many post-traumatic parents are people pleasers. I think, you know, especially if the trauma was growing up in a home where there was a lot of stress or a lot of criticism, you know, people pleasing is just part of it. And sometimes learning to undo that people pleasing, they like they're saying no to themselves and not giving the other person the chance to say no. So we're saying no, ask if they say no, they say no. That's how I got invited to all the toy events that I cover because I like to hack toys for post-traumatic parenting so that I can teach parents this lost art of playing with their kids. So I just write to events and I say, hi, can I come cover your event? No, I'm not from a major news outlet. This is what I do, and you know how many times I've become friends with the organizers of the events because you are like, "That is so
1: cool! Sure, you can come." Like, exactly. That's exactly what it is. That's what it takes. Just ask,
0: right? And if you get a no, it will hurt. But I mean, especially via email, you're not even in the same room as the person. So, what really happened?
1: You know what else that even impresses me are the kinds of no's that I get. So every year, I start out with the, like my wish list of the speakers for the event, right? And what I typically do is ask two top speakers in the same week because otherwise we start to lose time. If I'm getting a bunch of no's, well, one year Stephen Pressfield sent me the most gracious no I've ever received, and then offered to send us books to give away at the conference. So I don't know; they sent like three or four cases of books that we were. Wow, he's a class act. Total, (laughs) and that will stay with me forever, right? So yeah, this how you say no. The other people for those of us who are recovering people pleasers that taught me that I can say no graciously,
0: right? And that no that you put out in the world that gracious no, where you give somebody that crumb of you know information or feedback, I think that's so valuable, such a valuable service that we can give people when we give them kind feedback, even we are saying no.
1: Absolutely, and you know, karma comes back around. I want to put good in the world.
0: Yeah the same. I was so blown away at the nonfiction writers conference, just the whole way it was organized and all the quality of the speakers, everything. I feel like I'm still sometimes watching the recordings because I learned so much. I also use that pitch event as a way of showing patients of mine sometimes that, you know, they know my story of having been very shy in elementary school. And I'm like, I was very shy. And that was a very scary thing to do. And I did it. And if I do something like that again, I will be even better at it. Like that's all it was, right? Like I did it. It was fine. I I did well at it because I prepared and I knew it would be scary and I felt the fear and I did it anyway, because that's what we do with our fear. We say, thank you, fear. Thanks for that information. Yeah, this is scary. Yes, I could humiliate myself and yet I might not.
1: So I'm going to try. Well, preparation removes a ton of fear. I think at least it is for me. So when I come to something well-prepared, even when I quit my job, Right. So I start my business. Um, I would imagine you didn't just decide one day to quit your job like you build a plan. Right. So I spent a year developing a business plan. I hired a consultant to review my plan. I got all my numbers in order. The day I quit my job, my fear was like this much because I felt like I knew what I was doing
0: right? That's a good thing about fear, right? It gives us useful information. Like your fear was telling you, well, what if this happens? What if there's not enough customers? What if this, and you're like, okay, well, I will have a business plan and I will work with a consultant. And thank you for reminding me that fear, you know, I should get insurance for that. Come to think of it. That's a good idea. Other than that, you can be quiet and go away now.
1: That's right. Yeah. Thank you, fear. Bye-bye.
0: Right. Because fear has helped me. Like definitely when I was preparing for that pitch, I just, I rehearsed it a bunch of times because fear said, what if you mess up? So I said, all right, so I will rehearse it in a mirror until I feel ready. And I did. And it helped because I, first of all, didn't feel nearly the amount of fear. Second of all, it was successful because I was confident. And that's what listening to fear does. We listen to fear and then we say, fear, you're exaggerating a bit. So now you can go.
1: Ah, that's a great, great tip for people to take away. I love that.
0: Yeah. Fear. Fear is one of those motivations. I always say this to little kids in therapy. Like when my associates are seeing like the little ones, when they say, could you take away my worries? Nope. We can't take away your worries because we want you to stay alive, but we can take away how they make you feel.
1: That's so good.
0: Yeah. We like fear here. We like the like little fear caricature guy from inside out. Like he's, we have him like all over, like in little, like Funko figures.
1: I that movie was so brilliant. I am not a big cartoon lover, but I just love that movie.
0: And that's when I talk back to fear. I am talking to that purple guy.
1: That's right. Yep. Calm him down. So yeah. like, I choose to kind of run over my fear when it comes to business. So, yeah, I don't know why, but I just do.
0: Yeah, it seems like you have that, You like you're saying, you have that ability to just like charge ahead despite fear, like leave him flat in the road.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I would have gotten this community built if I hadn't If I had let fear slow me down or took a lot of time second guessing, because we can all second guess ourselves, right? I do that in other areas of my life, believe me. But for some reason in business, I have stayed very focused on on the goals. And it's fun to check them off the list.
0: Yeah, I find that for many post-traumatic parents, we are like the world's natural entrepreneurs because we're natural disruptors. Like we see the world differently because of our trauma. It lets us see the possibilities and just think a little differently than other people. The problem is fear that holds us back. I feel like there are so many post-traumatic parents that have great business ideas in them, great books in them, great products in them. And it's fear that's like, well, I'm going to stay in this kind of dead end soul destroying job because at least it's the devil I know. You know, I hear that so much and it's true. I get why that is. And I also get that, when we think fear, but then move on anyway, we're in a much better place.
1: Yeah. And it feels really good to go over a hurdle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like so many of the post-traumatic parenting community members are going to love hearing your story and hearing about everything that you did. If they want to find you, because maybe they have a nonfiction book in them, where can they find you?
1: Yeah. Come on over to nonfictionauthorsassociation.com. I would love to see you there. That's the best way to find me as well. We have lots of free resources on the website. We do the conference every year in May. That's at nonfictionwritersconference.com. And thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. So the time flew by.
0: Thank you so much. And thanks for that. Uh, thanks for the association. Thanks for the conference. You are putting something so valuable out into the world. Thanks I for can't wait to your see story. your book.
1: We'll talk about putting something valuable in the world. Your book is coming. I just know it. So, I am sending you a signed copy when it's out there. <laughs> I cannot wait to get that copy.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Bye you. Thanks. Bye. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? Do you have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows, your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.